ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 1. We have finished the Acts of the Apostles. Probably seemed like we would never get there, but we did uh, last Sunday. And now we are starting a series through John's last communication here in this world, which is the book of Revelation. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to the world through him as an apostle. These first three verses introduce events that will soon take place, recognizing that the time is near. As these verses introduce the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is then important to understand what is meant by this introductory statement, the time is near. As the book of Revelation was written sometime between 91 and 96 A.D., Uh, For you mathematicians, if you consider that it's 2021 today, that would make that how many years? Around 1925 years ago. So 1,925 years ago, this book was written. Now we know that a day can be like a thousand years in the eyes of God, in the sight of God, according to 2 Peter 3, verse 8 in which he is actually quoting uh, Psalm 90, verse 4. Now, what's important about Psalm 90? Well, Psalm 90 is the prayer of Moses. It is Moses looking at God's immortal grandeur contrasted to man's mortal smallness. The contrast is between how God views time and how we view time. A day being like a thousand years to God reveals that time is of little significance to God as He is eternal. But time means everything to us because we are mortal. So as this is the risen Jesus Christ, the immortal God speaking, is He speaking in reference to a time to time from a human perspective or from a divine perspective. Let's take a look. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear God's Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I want to start with the very first word that is presented, that this is the revelation of, of Jesus Christ. The word for revelation there is apocalypsis in the Greek. It means something that is revealed, something that was formerly hidden that is now revealed or unveiled. Uh, when I was younger, I, my, the very first truck I bought was a Ford Ranger. And the way it was discovered, I bought it at an auction, but the way it got to the auction was Uh, some guys during a really dry season found the top corner of the cab sticking out of the water in the middle of a pond. Now, there are several different stories on how that truck got to the middle of the pond. 
But needless to say, when it was discovered, when that water was, was withdrawn so that you could actually see it, a tow truck came over and pulled it out of the pond. They washed it off with a, with a high-power sprayer and, and, and brought it to the auction, uh, to which unwittingly I should not have bought it, but I did, <laughs> and then put a ton of work into trying to restore it. And then it still broke down on me. I'm not going to do a Ford and Chevy joke here, so I'll spare you on that. But the issue is that when, when, uh, when you look at it, it's, it's an unveiling. Something that was hidden that you could not see, you can now see because the veil has been taken away. Um, when people, I think, speak of the draining of the swamp in political terms, they want any illegal actions or persons who use their political clout for cover in the proverbial swamp to be revealed and dealt with according to the law. They want it to be revealed so that it can be dealt with appropriately. So revelation then is an unveiling of something that was formerly hidden. Yet this revelation comes after Jesus' ascension into heaven. Jesus was with mankind here in this world for 33 years. At least three of those years were spent by Jesus preaching and, and teaching the kingdom of God and, and showing forth the power of the kingdom of God through signs and wonders, through the miraculous works that he was doing, giving sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, showing the restorative power of God's Spirit uh, that is at work in the kingdom of God, that the power of the curse will be eliminated and removed and you will be restored and made whole in the presence of God. So we, we see Jesus doing this, and Jesus displayed, again, the power of heaven. But what is noted about Jesus by the disciples? Even in the midst of his preaching and teaching, even when Jesus says to Thomas, when you see me, you see the Father, there is still something that is notable about Jesus here that is different in his ascension. And that, that which is noted is that Jesus uh, divinity was veiled. His glory was veiled. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, looking at verses 6 through 7. Uh, as you're turning there, I'll go through it. The Apostle Paul writes, Philippians 2, 6 through 7, Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, Jesus emptying himself does not mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. I want to repeat that because it's extremely important because there are teachers and preachers of this day and age who actually claim that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, and that is a flat-out lie. He did not. Jesus emptying himself does not mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. Jesus was at all times both God and man while He lived here on earth. Even so, Jesus' glory was veiled through His incarnation, His taking upon human flesh. This means that Jesus voluntarily subjected Himself to the limitations of the flesh. Before Jesus' birth into this world, heaven was His throne. Now, as Jesus is born in the likeness of man, taking upon human flesh, he is limited in how far he could travel on foot. He, he was omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. But now the flesh limits him in what he can do. 
here in this world. It veils His glory. The Son of God who created all things lived in, lived in a body that got thirsty and hungry. As a child, Jesus developed as every human being must develop. Jesus was subject to the same challenging and often discouraging emotional experiences of pain, sorrow, and grief that every person experiences. And Jesus was tested as we are in every way, tempted by the devil in every way, probably even more, much more. And yet, what does it say about him? He was without sin. It's so important for us to understand that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And in this estate, He willingly limited Himself so that He could experience all that we experience. All that we experience. Even when Jesus was dying on the cross, suffering the most intense pain you can imagine, He would not drink the wine mixed with myrrh offered to Him. If you're quick, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27, verse 34, or Mark 15, verse 23. Theologian William Lane expresses about these passages, uh, according to an old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided an narcotic drink, wine mixed with myrrh to those condemned to death, in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain they were suffering. Today, it would be similar to a nurse Uh, giving a patient morphine or something equivalent to take the edge off of the pain. But Jesus, Jesus would not receive this elixir. He would not drink it. He was going to experience the full measure of humanity. The full measure of pain that we go through in the throes of death. And He would show that He is subject even though He is eternal to time in this body. Succumbing to death, even death on a cross, is one under the condemnation of God the Father. But when Jesus uttered those words, it is finished, what did they mean? When He said it is finished, what did they mean? The Greek word translated here is tetelestai, which means to finish a process but it's also translated as paying what is due. That's finishing the transaction. Paying what is due. It means that Jesus accomplished His mission by paying to the Father what was due. But you say, well, Jesus was perfect. He was righteous. He was holy. He lived a godly life. He was without sin. He owed God nothing. What do you mean, pay what is due? What do you and I owe God? It says in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. Those wages are not talking about physical death. It's talking about spiritual death. Eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Forever. That's the wages of sin against an eternal God. What you will be paid. And Jesus paid that off he paid that off as your savior so the sinner who truly believes on jesus as your savior those wages are paid for through jesus death on the cross and you are free of that burden to live for god if you know how good it feels 
to pay off your last car payment or make that last mortgage payment where the car is free and clear and it now belongs totally to you. You don't have to pay another cent on it. Or your house is free and clear. It belongs to you outright. You've made the last payment on it and you don't have to pay another cent on it. As long as you live, it's yours. If you can imagine what it feels like to enjoy that moment, then think of what it means that you are no longer eternally indebted to God. Eternally indebted to God. Because your sins have been paid for through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Offering His righteous life as payment on your behalf. Though your sins were as scarlet, through His shed blood He has made them. He has made you whiter than snow in the presence of God the Father. How awesome is that? And that is one side of Jesus' words. It is finished. What He has accomplished for you and me. But there's another side to Jesus saying it is finished. His mission as one who subjected Himself to the limitations of the flesh is over. Jesus' resurrected body is a glorified body wherein His glory is no longer veiled or concealed. If Jesus had come to this earth in His pre-incarnate glory, He could not accomplish what He came to do in this world. But now His glory is no longer veiled by the weakness of human flesh. Jesus does have a body, but John beholds the glory of the risen Christ in heavenly glory, and it is overwhelming. It's just a few more verses down in chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 12-17. through 17. John beholds the full glory of Jesus Christ, and he writes, And when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as if dead. I mean, the glory of Christ is so overwhelming, so overpowering, uh, overpowering, so amazing that He was just recognizing how insignificant, how small, how weak, how frail, and, and that He is a sinful man in the presence of, of this holy God. It's kind of like Isaiah in chapter Isaiah 6. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. You recognize who you are in the presence of, of God who is holy. And you fall down and worship as if dead. The point here is that the glory of Christ Jesus, which was hidden or veiled in Jesus' incarnation, is now unveiled or revealed in His resurrection and glory. Is time then considered from a divine perspective here? Is time considered from a divine perspective here? John writes in Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants what, soon, what must soon take place, He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John who testifies to everything He saw. This is what He bears witness to. That is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Greek word here for soon is takos. You kind of think of a taxi driver. You know, if you call them, wave your arm, they zip right in, try and pick you up and uh, take you to your destination as soon as possible. So there's, there's that sense of, of uh, swiftness. Uh, the, there's a, it refers here to a brief period of time with the focus uh, being on the speed of an activity or an event. But does the, words, does the word takos, translated soon, 
Does it refer to a short period of time as understood from a human perspective? Or does it refer to the imminent fulfilling of a sequence of events as understood from a divine perspective? Two different perspectives, aren't they? Commentator G.K. Beale puts it this way. He says, John's substitution of entake, soon or swift or quick, uh, what must soon take place, instead of Daniel's perspective of events in latter days, when in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7, he talks about what must take place in the latter days, implies that his, John's expectation that the final tribulation, defeat of evil, and establishment of the kingdom, which Daniel expected to occur distantly in latter days, would begin in his, in his own generation, and indeed that it had already begun to happen. We need to remember that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ in His unveiled divine glory. This message coming to John from Jesus' divine perspective, not from human perspective. So Beale continues down this line of thought. He says the focus of quickness and nearness in verses 1-3 through three is primarily on inauguration of prophetic fulfillment and its ongoing aspect, not of nearness of consummated fulfillment, though the latter is secondarily in mind as leading from the former. Now, inauguration is the matter of beginning a system. When we think about a presidential inauguration, a new, a new team can come into play and we have a new system at, that's, that's at work, right? And so we see this right here. It's like putting a car in gear. The car, the system is just there. Perhaps it's idling, waiting for its driver to come and put it into gear and drive it someplace. When the dry, where the car goes and how far it travels depends on the purpose of the one driving it. Hence, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ and John testifies that what he beholds and hears is the Word of God. John is beholding visions where these events predicted in the Old Testament are being engaged in his day. Hence, you are going to see references as we go along from the Old Testament that refer to what's going on in the present day, in John's present day. But you are also going to see John beholding Jesus as the Redeemer, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This system was engaged when Jesus said, it is finished while dying on the cross. That's when the car was put in gear, if you will. And Jesus accomplished, and what Jesus accomplished in this world was set in motion, uh, or set in motion events that will be carried out until his return. This is not just about Jesus being resurrected and ascending to the right hand of the throne of God, the Father. This is also about what Jesus set forth as the Father in heaven handed all authority over to his Son. And as Jesus Christ places all enemies under His feet. So what we have here is when Jesus said it is finished, His mission was accomplished here in this world. Then we have the glorification of Jesus Christ as He is resurrected and He ascends to the right hand of God the Father. And all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus Christ. Now what, what do you have after that? What are we celebrating today? We're celebrating Pentecost. And Jesus says to His disciples, 
I'm going to the Father because as I go to the Father, that means you can do more than what I did here in this world because I go to the Father. What Jesus is saying is when I go, when I go to the Father, I will be in my former glory. I'll no longer be limited by the flesh. This, 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 this setting aside or having to lay aside uh, this, this power, veiling this power because of the weakness of human flesh, that's going to be gone. And so all authority in heaven and on earth is going to be given to me and I can pour that authority, that power down into this world through you. And that's Pentecost. And so he's saying to his disciples, pray and wait. He doesn't give them a specific day, does he? He just says, pray and wait for the Spirit to come upon you. And they're in the room praying. And the Spirit is poured out upon them like tongues of fire. It lights upon their heads. And this power begins with them. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the one who engages this new system. This system is now at work until Jesus comes back and, and uh, puts all enemies under His feet. But now this system is engaged and you see the Spirit poured out upon the disciples. You see the Spirit working through the disciples to thousands of Jews who are there for the census. You see the Jerusalem church being established. And then you see the church growing from there. And you see it continually working out throughout the whole world. We've just gone through the Acts of the Apostles, right? Where we've seen this. We've borne, we bear witness to what is actually taking place. And the encouragement is that we are to go out into all the world with this gospel message that the Spirit that has been poured out is going to continue to be poured out until all the number of God's elect are gathered into His kingdom. And when that takes place, Jesus will return. So John writes in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. The witness is for the church's benefit, especially when God's people are facing very difficult and challenging times. In the book, The Hermeneutical Spiral, Grant Osborne comments that the purpose of esoteric or obscure symbols in apocalyptic literature is to turn readers from the actual event to its theological meaning. In other words, readers are expected to see the hand of God in the future even though they may not know the exact sequence of events. The point is that these events are not set forth by a known timetable, but by the will of God. If you consider what Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 32 through and following, he's, he's using the cursing of the fig tree as an illustration here, where he curses the fig tree and it withers and dies. And Jesus says, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, now this is new life, you know that summer is near. In other words, some signs will be observable and understandable. So when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation, and I believe him to be speaking to the elect of God, those who are this generation, the Christian generation, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened, until everyone from the far reaches of the world have been gathered in. This will, this, this will, not, my, this will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So we are not going to know the exact time of the Son of Man. How many passages in Scripture does Jesus tell us to remain faithful? To not look for a rapture or for this date or that date, but to remain faithful to Him day by day, generation to generation. So many people have made predictions, some notable, some not. Uh, You think about uh, um, Hippolytus of Rome and Irenaeus, both notable Christian theologians, said that Jesus would return in 500 A.D. He did not. Pope Sylvester II believed Jesus would return in 1000 A.D. He did not. There are other, uh, other predictions along this timeline, but... Those that we're more familiar with, you think of John Wesley, he believed that Jesus would come back in 1836. Charles Taze Russell, the president of Jehovah Witnesses, proclaimed he would come back in 1874. Joseph Smith and the Mormons believed he would come back in 1891. Seventh-day Adventists, 1964. Harold Camping said 1994. Jerry Falwell gave himself a span of years, 1999 to 2009, and when Jesus would return, and Jack Van Impey, uh, 2012, and there are other predictions as well. Has he come back yet? No, he is not. He'll come back when we'll all say, no, he's not coming back. Then like a thief in the night, he'll appear. That's why we are called to be faithful. Who knows that day and hour except the Father? because it is not set by a timetable, but by His will. For Christians, the most important message of Revelation and Daniel is not necessarily precise symbolic meanings of dragons and horns and things like that, although we will look at those things. The more pressing message is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the whole hosts of heaven are engaged in what's going on in this world. They know what's going on in your life. And they care about you. And they're watching out for you. And in due time, they will intervene in human history and triumph over all their foes. But all the elect must be gathered in before this takes place which places the responsibility on us as God's people to seek them out, remembering Jesus' words of assurance in Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So is the time near? Yes. The time is near. The system is engaged. And we need to be a part of that system, preaching and teaching the kingdom of God and reaching out to all with the good news of his gospel. Amen.